Today's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 to 28. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gate of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Living God, we're so grateful for your word. We're grateful for the power of your word to bring new life, and especially for your word to help us encounter the risen Jesus. And so now as we open your word together, may all of that take place for his glory and in his name. Amen. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Justin Kim contacted me on behalf of Anthony Brown to preach for this Lord's Day service, Justin's sense was that the text that would be of most help for First Baptist Vancouver at this point is the text we just heard Doug Powell read wherein we hear Jesus' great promise, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Interestingly, the Matthew text we just read is the text I preached the first time I was a guest preacher for first after I had officially retired as senior minister. It was January of 2017, and I was asked to work into the series at that time, which was Jesus is Asking. 
And so I focused on his question, who do you say that I am? This time, taking my lead from Justin's sense, I want to focus on Jesus' promise. I will build my church. I will build my church. And I want to focus on this promise in the face of all that seems to be in the way of the promise being fulfilled in our time. COVID-19, UK variant, South African variant, Brazilian variant. Over a year now, under the cloud of this pandemic, with no clear end in sight, in spite of the vaccine rollout, so daunting, still having to meet in bubbles of isolation, unable to gather for worship in person. I mean, how do you be the church if you can't gather for worship in person? I was saddened by the picture of Queen Elizabeth sitting all alone in the sanctuary of St. George's at the memorial service for her beloved Prince Philip. A poignant picture, picture of our time. Even the queen physically distanced in her time of grief. And then on top of the pandemic, there is the increasing political tension and upheaval all around the world. And some of that causing division within Christ Church. On top of all of that, what seems to be the warp speed disintegration of a once stable moral order. And now, beginning this Sunday, First Baptist formally moving out of the facilities for this two-year process of renovation and seismic upgrading. Even if the pandemic were to end tomorrow, FBC will not be able to gather in the beloved space at the corner of Nelson and Burrard. I'm looking forward to that virtual uh, leaving FBC video that Curtis Finley is putting together. In the face of all that seems to be in the way, I invite you to focus on one of the greatest promises Jesus of Nazareth ever made. I, I will build, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we begin to grasp who this I is, and when we begin to grasp what this I means by the word church, we realize that his promise not only has implications for what is going on in the world right now, it has implications for our understanding of the whole of church history. Indeed, it has implication for our understanding of the whole of world history. It turns out that reading history through the lenses of Jesus' great promise helps us more accurately interpret the past, analyze the future, and uh, analyze the present, and forecast the future. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell have tried many times in nearly every part of the world where Jesus has built or is building his church. And, and at, at times, it seems that the gates of hell are prevailing. I cannot imagine, begin to imagine, what our sisters and brothers are going through in places like Syria and Egypt and India, 
where church buildings are being torched and where church members are being murdered. In our part of the world, Vancouver, British Columbia, the church is not under overt assault. Rather, the church does not even seem to matter. The church is not even on the cultural radar screen. Unless, of course, we do something wrong, in which case we get a lot of media coverage. As you know, cities all over the world are being redesigned. New cities are being envisioned right in the midst of old cities. And what strikes me about most of these designs is that there is no space set apart for churches or synagogues or mosques or temples. You might know that Ikea is proposing to build the ideal city on 26 acres of South London. There are no sacred spaces in the design. There are no spaces for worship, none of any kind. Oak Ridge Mall is being redeveloped into a city within a city, a new municipal town center, as the website calls it. No sacred spaces in this new town center. Metro Town Mall is being redesigned into a city within a city. Stunning design. <laughs> no sacred spaces. The newly redesigned Brentwood Mall, near where Sharon and I now live, scheduled to open soon, we hope, refers to itself as a global community that captures the heartbeat of humanity. Isn't that a, a great way of articulating urban design and urban reality? A global community that captures the heartbeat of humanity. Massive stately condominium towers, first-rate SkyTrain station, Starbucks, Nike, London Drugs, TD Canada, Cineplex, state-of-the-art gyms, but no sacred spaces. Capturing the heartbeat of humanity, and there are no sacred spaces. As painful as that is, and as disturbing as that is, it does not finally affect the realization of Jesus' promise. It turns out that Jesus does not need cities to set apart space for him to build his church. Given who he is, he will always find a way to fulfill his promise. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Jesus first made his promise, the world was in great turmoil. Although most of the world wasn't bombarded by the fact, since there was no mass media, no Facebook or Instagram. Many revolutionary forces were at work all over the Roman Empire and especially in the Roman-occupied Palestine-Israel area. Some of the movements were employing peaceful ends to accomplish their goals. Most of the movements were resorting to violence of one sort or another. They'd grown impatient in their longing for justice and were taking matters into their own hand using methods of terrorism. In the midst of that place, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let us focus on and they take our stand upon Jesus' promise that puts so much into perspective. 
And, and let us do so by asking two questions. Question one, who is this I who makes this promise? And question two, what does this I mean by the word church? First question, who is this I? Who is this I who speaks so confidently in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds? Many of you know the answer, and you long to hear it again. Indeed, in our time, we need to hear it again. Unless we know who this I is, the promise seems hopelessly idealistic or even naive. Matthew tells us that when Jesus made the promise, he and his first disciples were traveling through the district of Caesarea Philippi. Matthew's referring to a number of towns and villages at the foot of the beautiful Mount Hermon, which is now in the area called the Golan Heights. A very dark place. The darkest place Jesus ever visited. It was also a very pluralistic place. Still is the most pluralistic place Jesus visited in his earthly life. Early on, it was called Panaeus or Panaeus in honor of the Greek god Pan, the all. It was later called Bolinus after the Canaanite god Baal, the fertility god. In 3 BC, Philip, the Tetrarch of Galilee, renamed it Caesarea in honor of the Roman Empire Caesar Augustus, who at that time was being called Son of God and Savior. In that spiritually dark place, in that multi-pluralistic place, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? Actually, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is Jesus' way of referring to himself. The disciples report the different things people were saying about Jesus. You are Elijah, you're Jeremiah, you're one of the prophets. And though as, and as inadequate as those answers are, they at least move in the right direction. Jesus is, at minimum, a prophet. Then, in that dark, pluralistic context, Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Now, I'm emphasizing the context because spiritual darkness and complex pluralism are nothing new to Jesus. Darkness and pluralism do not intimidate Jesus. He can hold his own in such places. Jesus knows the world in which he speaks, 1st century and 21st century. Pan, Baal, Caesar, Muhammad, Buddha, Brahma. And he's not afraid to raise questions about his identity in such places. And neither should his disciples be afraid. In the district of Caesarea Philippi, Peter answers for the first band of disciples, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one, the one about whom God made tremendous promises. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy, waters will break forth and the wilderness streams in the desert. When Messiah comes, he will overcome all the threats to the shalom of God. He will bring the shalom of God. He is the shalom of God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one in whom all the hopes of all the years are embodied and fulfilled. 
who fulfills all those hopes in a surprising way, must go to Jerusalem. Jesus responds to Peter, I, Messiah, must go to Jerusalem, suffer, be killed, and raised up on the third day. No way, says Peter, no way must Messiah die. Get out of my way, Jesus responds, because there is no other way. Messiah fulfills all the expectations about him by going to a cross erected by the Roman oppressors. Messiah fulfills all that is expected of him by walking into the face of sin and evil and death and letting sin and evil and death throw all it can at him. That is the eye who makes the promise to build his church. And son of the living God, says Peter. You are the son of the living God. Now, we do not know what Peter exactly had in mind at that moment. We do know what he had in mind later on, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we're not sure what he meant at that point in Caesarea Philippi. He had likely heard Jesus say, just a few months before, what was recorded in Matthew 11:25 to 27. Just before Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son but the Father, and no one knows the Father but the Son. Peter likely also had in mind Psalm 2, a critical psalm in that time. Psalm 2, where in the face of people and nations rebelling against him, God says, as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And then God says to the king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance. Son of the living God, God's chosen king, God's beloved, who alone knows the Father, who alone can reveal the Father. He is the face of the unseeable Father, the perfect revelation of all that is God, the one who has lived from all eternity in intimate relationship with God the Father, who then chooses to become one of us, and then as one of us, give his life away for the life of the world. That is the I who makes the promise to build the church. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Son of Man. Jesus does not just ask, who do people say that I, that I am, but who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man, as I said earlier, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. Now get this. No one in the first century would have ever dared to call himself Son of Man. No one in any century has dared call himself the Son of Man, except Jesus of Nazareth, 77 times in the New Testament. More than any title, Son of Man embraces the totality of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus uses the title in reference to his earthly work. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He uses it in reference to his future work. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father. And he uses it to a reference to, in reference to a time before he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Now, on one level, the term was simply a Hebraic Aramaic way of saying human being. You might know Psalm 8. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Man, son of man, are in parallel. 
Thus, God calls the prophet Ezekiel son of man 90 times. It's a way of saying human being. So in using this title of himself, Jesus is affirming his solidarity with us. He is a real flesh and blood human being. The son of God becomes a son of man. But the term meant so much more in the first century. I mean, so much more. You see, of the 77 times Jesus uses the term in the New Testament, 76 times he uses it with the definite article, the, the son of man. Jesus calls himself the son of man, not a son of man. Now, the son of man would remind first century people of the lead actor in the drama of God's salvation of the world. In particular, the son of man would remind people of that special figure we meet in the prophet Daniel. Uh, those of you who were part of First Baptist when I was the senior minister know that I love to talk about this section of scripture. In the seventh chapter of the book, Daniel tells us of a vision God gave him one night. And it's a vision about the course of world history. In the vision, Daniel sees four great beasts. They're representing four world empires. And in the vision, the four beast empires are brought before the throne of God, before the Ancient of Days, where they're judged. One beast is slain, and the other three lose their dominion. Then, in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, we're brought into a remarkable scene. Listen, listen, I never tire reading this. Listen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. To him was given dominion and glory and kingdoms that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. One like a son of man, a towering figure, in the words of Eugene Peterson, a commanding, redeeming, glorious figure. Now, soon after this vision began to be circulated, people dropped the phrase, one like a son of man, and simply said, the son of man. In the vision, the son of man comes with the clouds of heaven. In the Bible, clouds of heaven refer to the presence of the divine. The imagery is conveying the superhuman majesty of the Son of Man. It's conveying the divine likeness of the Son of Man. In the vision, the Son of Man does not bow to the Ancient of Days. Everyone else who enters the throne room bows, but not the Son of Man. Why? Because he's appeared of the ancient of days. In the vision, the Son of Man does not confess sins. Confess his sin was the first thing the prophet Isaiah did when he was in the presence of God. Woe is me, not the Son of Man, because the Son of Man has no sin to confess. And in the vision, the Son of Man is given a vision, is given a kingdom which cannot be destroyed, a dominion that will never pass away. So, by the first century, the Son of Man referred to, get this, a heavenly, pre-existent being, divine being, who would come at the end of time to judge the nations of the world and inaugurate the kingdom of God. According to German scholar Ethelbert Stauffer, Son of Man is just about the 
most pretentious piece of self-description any person in the ancient East could possibly have used. And no one ever claimed to be this towering figure. No one dared do so. It is too lofty a title. But Jesus of Nazareth does use it. And then another surprise. He chooses to live the title in a way no one would have ever expected. Speaking to his disciples about leadership and power, Jesus says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. The one before whom every knee will bow gets down on his knees and washes our feet. That is the I who promises to build his church. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Son of Man. Worship leader Matthew Westerholm captures the implications for me in his song, The First Place. Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ, for through you and for you it was made. Your creation endures by order of your hand, so you must have in all things the first place. And that is the rock upon which Jesus promises to build his church. Not Peter, but Peter's claim and Jesus' claim. That is the eye of the promise. So the second question, what does Jesus mean by the word church? Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Now, clearly, he's not referring to a building, although it sure helps to have nice buildings, right? <laughs> I was deeply moved on Easter Sunday uh, by the video behind uh, the organist, playing the organ, and then looking into the brightly lit sanctuary. Oh, what a glorious building. And Jesus is clearly not referring to an institution. Although any group of human beings needs some kind of institutional form, some kind of polity. Maybe you've heard the saying before, where two or more are gathered together, there is politics. So what does Jesus mean by the church? Uh, the actual word he uses is another surprise. It is the word ecclesia. It comes into the English language in words like ecclesiology or ecclesiastical. I say it's another surprise because, as Larry Hurtato of Scotland points out, in the first century, ecclesia is not a religious word. Let me say that again. Ecclesia is not a religious word. There were many other words Jesus could have used that were religious, like theosos. It means a group of people gathering for worship around a particular deity. Jesus does not say, I will build my theosis, although his church does gather to worship him and his Father and the Spirit. Another word is the word iranos. It's a, it refers to a group of people who celebrate re, re, uh, religious festivals. Jesus does not, does not say, I will build my iranos, although the church does celebrate feasts, Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. Another word, a good word, is the word koinon. It's related to koinonia. It refers to a fellowship around a god. Jesus does not say, I will build my koinon, although his church is a fellowship. It's a fellowship in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another word is synotos. 
people meeting around a particular teaching. Jesus does not say, I will build my synatas, my synod, although the church does seek to understand and obey his teaching. And then there's a good word he could have used, the word synagogue. People who gather to study and live the Torah, the law of God, and to listen to the prophets. Jesus does not say, I will build my synagogue, although, again, his church does seek to understand and live out the vision of the law and the prophets. He uses none of those religiously oriented terms. Instead, he says, I will build my ecclesia. Why? Well, the word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to refer to Israel as the congregation of the Lord. And the term is used when the living God summons his people to assemble for some new act of obedience. My ecclesia, says Jesus, my church. When we gather as his church, whether in person or virtually, it's because he's summoned us. He summoned us for a fresh encounter with him and a fresh word we are to obey. Yes, on one level, you and I chose to gather together online today. But on another, line, another level, we were summoned. We were summoned out of bed to gather before the screen. As Christ the Messiah, he summons us. Come, come into my life, receive my spirit. I will anoint you with my anointing. As son of God, he summons. Come, come into my relationship with my father. I want to teach you my father so you can trust him the way I trust him. As son of man, he summons, come, come into my kingdom, enter my new world order. We are his ecclesia, we are his summoned assembly. But in addition to working with the Old Testament understanding of the word, Jesus is also working with the, how the Greeks and Romans use the word. Ecclesia referred to the gathering of citizens of that day to conduct civic business. I'll repeat that. Ecclesia refers to the gathering of the citizens of a city to conduct civic business. Now, although nearly every event in Greek and Roman life involves some reference to the gods, an ecclesia was not a religious event. It was the gathering of competent citizens of the city to conduct the important business of the city. Wow! The Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man is assembling his ecclesia in the city. He's summoning his people to conduct the important business of the city. Of course. For as Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, Jesus is the true ruler of any city. Right? Right? A thumbs up emoji will do just as fine to saying right. He is Messiah for every city of the world. He's Son of God for every city of the world. He's Son of Man for every city of the world. Right? So, in order to conduct his business in every city of the world, he's forming his ecclesia in every city of the world. When we gather as the Church of Jesus Christ, we gather to do the important work of running the city with Jesus. This is a civic event with civic implications. 
Which is why I say then that the well-being of the city is at stake in the ecclesia of Jesus. Or, or, or differently, the health of any city is directly related to the health of the church in the city. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the implication of being the Son of Man. And, and we can make this affirmation even more contemporary. Jesus is mayor of mayors, right? Jesus is premier of premiers, right? Jesus is president of presidents, right? Jesus is prime minister of prime ministers, right? And as mayor of mayors, he assembles his city council to conduct the important business of the city. I mean, talk about essential services. Jesus loves the cities of the world, even if they don't set aside sacred spaces for his church. He loves Vancouver and Calgary and Winnipeg and Ottawa and New York and Washington, D.C., even Washington, D.C., and London and Moscow and Beijing and on it goes. The Messiah loves the city of the world. The Son of God loves the cities of the world. The Son of Man loves the cities of the world. And in his love, he's building his city council in the cities of the world, through whom he's then building new cities. Cities of refuge where people find mercy. Cities of justice where people find dignity and freedom. Cities of peace where people are made whole. That it's finally what he means by my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Prevail against it. Prevail against it. Yes, Jesus is saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church when the gates of hell try to prevail against his church. But more importantly, Jesus is saying the gates of hell will not prevail against his church when his church goes up against the gates of hell. When his church lives as his church, the church pushes up against the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail. The kingdom of God will break into the darkness and confusion and chaos and oppression and the fear of death. The question is, are you in? Are you in what Jesus is building? Jesus is summoning his ecclesia. Are you in? Can you confess today that he is Messiah? Can you confess today that he is the son of the living God? Can you confess today that he is the glorious son of man? And will we, like the Messiah, choose the way of the cross and lay down our life for the life of the city? And will we, like the Son of God, choose to spend our lives that the city might find life in him? And will we, like the great Son of Man, choose not to be served, but to serve so that the people of our city might flourish? So, First Baptist Church of Vancouver, as you move into yet another challenging chapter of your history, take your stand on the great promise. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not prevail.
not prevail. Why? <laughs> because the gates of hell did not prevail against Jesus. And how do I know that? Because the gates of hell did not prevail against Jesus when they tried to prevail against Jesus. Oh, how they tried on Good Friday, on that afternoon when Jesus walked right into the gates of hell. On that cross, the gates of hell tried everything they could do to prevail over Jesus, and it appeared that they had. But on the third day, just as he had promised, on Easter morning, in the cemetery where they had laid his body, he rose up. Jesus got up, never to die again. And in that moment, the gates of heaven were opened wide and will be for the rest of eternity. All praise be unto him. Amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.